0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On Air. Te Saranai, the blessings of the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha be with you. Welcome to Radio Dharma and our progress on the path to enlightenment. For some weeks we've been looking at Bodhicitta, the mind to attain enlightenment to free all beings from suffering, and the deeds of a person who has developed Bodhicitta, the Bodhisattva. Those who have been following the program will remember that someone interested in this following the Buddha Bodhisattva path, starts off with aspiring Bodhicitta. This person thinks, Yes, I really like the idea of attaining enlightenment and freeing all beings from their suffering, but I can't do it right now. It's too much. Maybe I'll be able to do it sometime in the future. So then they slowly get used to the idea until they think it's time to put their determination where their aspiration is and take the plunge. They then take the Bodhisattva vows which consist of 18 root and 46 secondary pledges, and start practicing the deeds of the Bodhisattva. Essentially, that means the six perfections. Generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom. In this process, we've come to the first of the perfections, generosity, which we spoke about last week. You may remember that a perfection is not an act, but a state of mind. When we speak about generosity... That means someone has the perfection if they are prepared to give everything, even their body parts or their life. Of course, most of us are nowhere near that point yet, but it's what we steadily work towards once we've taken the Bodhisattva vows. In fact, the instructions on practicing this perfection say that we should not give our body or flesh until we've developed so much compassion that we can easily give such things without the least regret or miserliness. I was talking about this with some other people not so long ago and the question arose whether it's okay to give someone something like one of your kidneys if both of theirs were failing. I think if you had no qualms about it and genuinely wanted to help it would be a very positive thing to do. If you could generate a bodhicitta motivation for giving the kidney it would even be a cause for enlightenment. Generally, however, we're told not to give bodily parts and so on unless it serves many beings. We should certainly not give them if the person asking for them is not sincere. So if someone with mental problems asks you for your heart, for instance, it's probably not a good idea to hand them a large knife, even if you are a great bodhisattva. The point is that a real bodhisattva can help many beings with his or her body. So to destroy or maim it for an insignificant purpose deprives many others of benefit. Someone with bodhicitta, of course, wants to help as many beings as possible. Another question that comes up is how much pain a bodhisattva suffers if they give up bodily parts and so on. Well, up to the time bodhisattvas can give away anything without even the least regret or miserliness, they will experience physical pain. But unlike an ordinary person like me, who will yell their head off, the pain will only increase the bodhisattva's compassion as he or she remembers all the other beings who are experiencing the same or much worse agonies. By the time their training has reached the level of perfection of generosity, bodhisattvas don't experience any more physical pain, even if their bodies are chopped up into little bits. Some programs ago, I spoke about Zongtsoh Kensa Rinpoche, the director of the movies The Cup, and Travellers and Magicians. Sometime last year, while he was in New Zealand, for a very short time, he became quite ill and when he later went to Australia, the doctors discovered he had a stone in his gallbladder that was causing a high fever and severe abdominal pain. One of the medical staff treating him was puzzled and asked him something like, Usually I can tell from looking at people how much pain they're going through, but I can't tell with you. On a scale of one to ten, how severe would you say it is? I'd say it's eight, Brimberche replied. Of course, if ordinary people had that much agony, they would be white and sweating and maybe moaning and groaning loudly. I think there's little doubt that Zon Sakensumbache is a very highly realized master, and his capacity to bear pain is much higher than ours, because thinking very little of himself, he transforms it into compassion for all other suffering beings. It's not only our body and its parts we have to be careful about when giving. Even when we are being generous with other things, we have to be mindful. For instance, many monks don't eat after lunch, and then it would be not very clever for a layperson to ask a group of monks out to to a restaurant for dinner one night. Similarly, if a monk is a vegetarian, it highly creates positive karma to place a steaming steak in front of him for lunch, even though he might feel obliged to eat it. Now say as a Bodhisattva you think of giving one of your treasured possessions to someone else but a little voice inside niggles saying you you really shouldn't give it away. You need it in any way. You You like it so much. Blah, blah, blah. That is just the time you should give it away. Part of a Bodhisattva's work is to defeat all miserliness and that little voice in the background is just that, miserliness. So the best thing to do is knock it on the head, which is all very well. But, my, but I must say that I would personally find giving away my little laptop, which is admittedly very useful, quite difficult. However, if that little voice didn't rise and a Bodhisattva was asked to give away something like a Dharma text, he or she hadn't yet finished studying, they should be very careful. If the text would only benefit the one person asking for it, the Bodhisattva should refuse to give it until he or she had finished with it. Why? Well, because through their study of the text, the Bodhisattva would be able to help many beings, but if they didn't complete their study of it, the text might only ultimately help one. This generosity is a bit of a minefield, isn't it? Perhaps more obvious is that there are some things we should never give, like, for instance, a mother giving her children into slavery or prostitution for the sake of money. Another example is that a monk never gives away his robes although I did hear of one very great ordained master who gave an outer robe to a disciple even though he was due at the airport shortly afterwards. The master's attendant had to quickly go and get the robe back from the disciple so that the master could travel more decently. I can't say what the circumstances for the master giving the outer robe, but because he's undoubtedly a very great master and a bodhisattva, he could do that sort of thing. Normally monks shouldn't, though. Also, we mustn't give away things like weapons or poison and so on if we know that the person we're giving them to will harm themselves or others with them. That's that's also pretty obvious. When someone complains of cockroaches in their house, we don't dig out the can of raid for them. So that completes the act of generosity. It will do us good to keep the four generosities in mind as we're going about our daily business, giving material objects, dharma, protection and love and practice those as much as possible. I've talked a bit long into the program without thinking about motivation but better late than never so let's now take a moment to set our motivation a bit retrospectively, admittedly for today's program. If you can, make the motivation to gain enlightenment for the sake of all beings everywhere the bodhicitta motivation if not, at least for your own liberation from samsara Thank you. Now the next perfection is morality or ethics. Ethics is the intention to give up harming others and oneself. It includes giving up the very thought that is the basis of such harm. If the practice of ethics is based on a bodhicitta motivation, it is the perfection of ethics and leads to Buddhahood. Of course, we can practice ethics without this motivation, and in the future experience happy results, like liberation. But unless our ethics are based on bodhicitta, it doesn't become the cause for full enlightenment. In the same way as generosity is a state of mind to give everything, ethics is a state of mind of complete non-harm under all circumstances. The perfection of ethics is not the complete eradication of all harm. If it were, the Buddha would not have completed the perfection of ethics because, as we know, beings are still harming each other everywhere. As we also all know, all Buddhist practice is based on ethics. Many Buddhists take and keep the five precepts for life. Some go even further and keep eight precepts, and of course monks and nuns have hundreds of vows to keep. Why did the Buddha place so much importance on an ethical lifestyle? You might say that it's the best way for people to live harmoniously together, which is true. If people are always careful to avoid harming each other, how much better our society would be, don't you think? But ethics don't only bring peace and harmony in this life. Ethics also is the karmic basis for good coming lives. If we harm others, we create the causes to go to the lower realms. But if we protect and help others, we create the causes for rebirth in the higher realms. Of course, we must practice generosity as well, because if we only practice ethics without generosity... We could get a rebirth as a human, for instance, but lack resources, as poor people do in third world countries. On the other hand, if we practiced only generosity and didn't take care of our morality, we could find ourselves as a kind of being who's very wealthy but actually can't enjoy that wealth in any real sense. Some texts talk about a kind of serpent being called Naga that can be like that. And I'm reminded of stories I was told in my youth about dragons that hid huge treasures in the caves they lived in, but could do nothing with their treasure except except sleep on it. So perhaps my childhood dragons and these Nagas are one and the same thing. However, if we don't want to be born into a situation like that, we have to practice both ethics and generosity generosity together to get the kind of future life in which we can continue to practice and make further spiritual progress. The Buddha said that practicing pure ethical behavior and protecting your your vows is like wearing a beautiful ornament. In the same way an ornament makes its wearer beautiful, ethics beautifies one who practices it. An ethical person does not give harm to anybody, their speech is gentle and considerate, and their thoughts are free from harming others or coveting their possessions. They're relaxed and open, and others feel comfortable and safe around them. Even animals feel happy around someone they know is not harmful to them. I've been told of monks in Sri Lanka and Thailand who live deep in the forest in caves or huts. In the forest are many ferocious wild animals, but not many monks are harmed. Why? Because the monks live a completely non-harmful way of life. Because they practice ethics strictly, together with loving-kindness and compassion to all beings, the creatures of the forest feel comfortable and are not aggressive towards them. But we don't have to be an ordained person for that to happen. Three or four years ago, a Maori named Paora, I know who is a Buddhist, who went to to America and did a retreat in a cave in the mountains there. I heard that one day he looked up from his meditation to find a cougar standing watching him in the mouth of a cave. Paora just sat still and peacefully while he and the cougar looked at each other for a moment or two. Then the cougar went on his way and disappeared back into the mountains. I have also heard of a monk in Sri Lanka who for a long time shared a cave with a tiger. And there is of course the Pa Luang Tuad temple in Thailand where monks have been actually living side by side with and looking after tigers in their monasteries since 1998. Talking about monasteries, the monks who are the most respected are often those who practice ethics purely not necessarily those with the big names who are great or who are great teachers. In the monastery I'm associated with in India, I've been sponsoring the monk who is now abbot of one of the two colleges in the monastery. He's very highly respected as a teacher in the monastery, and when I visited there some years ago, he would have classes for eight or nine hours a day. However, he was a very simple monk. Although his students gave him new robes and all sorts of outer offerings, he lived in a smallish room and always wore the same lived in robes. Not only was he a great teacher, but because he lived simply and within his vows, the other monks in the college looked up to up to him as a great example. in due course, they elected him to be the abbot of about one thousand seven hundred and fifty monks and it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up as the abbot of the whole monastery of some four thousand monks one day, similarly. In lay life, the people we most respect are those who live lives that are helpful to others, that don't harm others. Of course, CEOs of multinationals and people like that command a certain kind of respect, but I think in most communities it's the people who are least harmful and most helpful that people most look up to. As Buddhists, we all at least want to attain liberation from the endless round of suffering, don't we? That is, after all, why we follow the Buddha. But this is impossible if we don't live ethical lives. We might say we are Buddhists and praise Lord Buddha as our master and guide, but if we don't live ethically, it's all just make-believe. The Buddha never said that we can gain liberation or enlightenment by harming ourselves or others, and that means even the smallest of insects. Say you're sweeping the floor and notice a couple of ants crawling about where you're about to put your broom. You could, of course, just go ahead and sweep the ants up with the rubbish and throw them away, perhaps hurting or even killing them in the process. Or you could either avoid them or pick them up gently and take them somewhere safe. This kind of choice determines whether you act ethically or not. Taking little notice or even less care of them shows a lack of ethics. Ethics. While looking after them the best way you can, and in particular making sure you don't harm them, is acting ethically. One monk I heard of had to go to the doctor for problems with headaches and so on. The doctor told him he had parasites living in his brain, I guess something like a pork tapeworm, and advised the monk to take medicine to kill them off. But the monk refused and went on living with them. Eventually he died of complications to his brain, but he never harmed the parasite and kept his ethics pure right to the end. Maybe many of us will not be able to be so compassionate, but it is an example of someone who is intent on keeping their ethics pure. In the Buddha's teachings, we identify three main areas, more commonly known as baskets, the Vinaya, Sutra, and Abhidharma. The Vinaya deals with ethics, Sutra with concentration, and Abhidharma with wisdom. In the Tibetan monasteries, Vinaya or the monk's vows are always the last subject of study, but when considering the three baskets, Vinaya always comes first. Why? Well, because everything else in the progress along the Buddhist path depends on Vinaya or ethics. We cannot develop proper concentration without an ethical basis, and we cannot realize wisdom without concentration. So if we want to follow the Buddha, our first consideration is proper behavior. Isn't that why the Buddha taught the Eightfold Noble Path right in the beginning? So we can see how important ethics is. One commentary says that ethics is like the earth. Just as the earth is the base from which flowers, fruit and so on grow, so ethics is the foundation for all spiritual attainments and realizations. It says, Without ethics, it's a waste of time to practice calm abiding, special insight or bodhicitta. You will gain no realization of these because without ethics you lack mindfulness and awareness to, agree, to a degree that you constantly indulge in non virtuous thoughts and actions. The negative karmas that are generated by this are major obstacles to developing realizations. That is a quote from the book Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism by Geshe Acharya Loden. Mahayana Buddhism in the Tibetan tradition lists three divisions of ethics the ethics of restraint, the ethics of gaining virtuous dharmas, and the ethics of benefiting beings. The first, the ethics of restraint, means restraining our body, speech, and mind from non-virtue. At the most basic level, we're talking about avoiding the ten non-virtues, which we covered when we looked at karma in a previous program. For those new to the program, three of those non-virtues relate to the body, four to speech and three to mind. The three of body are killing, stealing and sexual misconduct. The four of speech are lying, slander, harsh words and gossip. And the three of mind are covetousness, harmful thoughts to others and wrong views. Killing refers to all sentient creatures, not only humans. So even the the pork tapeworm in the monk's head was covered and that's why he didn't want to take medicine that would harm it. Stealing refers to anything of value and sexual misconduct mainly refers to having sex with another person's partner, but also covers covers actions like sex in a temple at wrong times of day with close family members and so on. Then in addition to these, what the Tibetan call natural non-virtues, the ethics of restraint, also includes all the vows we may take, like the five precepts for a day or for life, the eight precepts, the novice and fully ordained vows, what we call the vows of individual liberation. In the Mahayana, practitioners also take Bodhisattva vows, as we have discussed earlier, and in the Vajrayana practices, people have even more vows to keep. The Mahayana and Vajrayana vows are somewhat more complex than what the vows of individual liberation are, and are considered overriding, but you cannot disregard the vows of individual liberation because you have taken Mahayana or Vajrayana vows. Those two depend on the vows of individual liberation. So it's important to keep all the vows we've taken to the best of our ability. As the Buddha said in the Sutra on having pure ethics, pictures, it's easy to part from your life and die, but not so with degenerated ethics. Why? By parting from life and dying, just this lifespan is exhausted. But if your ethics degenerate and you die for 100 times 100,000 rebirths, you are parted from your lineage, will be devoid of happiness and experience great suffering. Except for the four root vows of a monk, nun or novice, breaks of individual liberation vows can be purified and the ordination is not lost. If an ordained person breaks the four root vows, they can no longer be regarded as ordained. Bodhicitta and Vajrayana vows can also be purified and the vows taken again in special ceremonies. The second division of ethics is that of gathering virtuous dharmas, and this means practicing virtuous actions such as the six perfections, meditating particularly on wisdom, and so forth. Buddhism divides mind, what we Westerners might call the whole internal event, into a main mind that just observes and gathers information and mental factors, which are responsible for attitudes, emotions and so on. Although we can designate many mental factors, they have been divided into six broad categories. One of those categories is a list of 11 virtuous mental factors which, when practiced, fall under the ethics of gathering virtuous Dharma. The first of these is faith, which is a clarity and conviction with regard to the Dharma. It's a joyful state of mind that observes object in this case the Buddha's teachings, without the disturbance of any of the delusions like doubt or wrong view. Then shame is also a virtuous mental factor. This refers to a mental factor that prevents us from committing non-virtuous actions because of personal conscience. We don't want to shame ourselves. For instance, if we have the opportunity and perhaps the impulse to steal, we stop ourselves because we know stealing will shamefully harm both our precepts and bring negative karma. It is different from embarrassment, the next virtuous virtuous mental factor which prevents us from doing non-virtue out of consideration for others. I won't steal because I know it will bring misery to others and cause me to appear criminal in in their eyes. Shame and embarrassment are the main factors we use in cyclic existence to avoid doing negative actions. Then the fourth factor is non-attachment. That is the mind that is not attached to the objects of cyclic existence. It prevents us from grasping at them. Similarly, non-hatred helps us to overcome hatred and aversion to those we would regard as enemies, repulsive or harmful. It's the absence of the intent to harm others. Then the sixth factor is non-ignorance. That comes from study or meditation or even as part of our character from a previous life. It's accompanied by strong intelligence and overcomes ignorance. The next factor is enthusiasm, though this doesn't refer to enthusiasm to frequent movie houses and, and bars. It refers, of course, to joyfully doing virtuous actions, like helping others, meditating or studying and so on. Then pliancy lets the mind focus on whatever it wishes without discomfort and for as long as we wish. Mental pliancy will lead to physical pliancy, which in turn leads to freedom from pain and disease. Pliancy is the criterion for attaining calm, abiding and special insight, shamatha and vipassana. Then the ninth mental factor is conscientiousness and this refers to being diligent about creating virtuous actions and avoiding non-virtuous ones. The last two mental factors are equanimity, a mental factor that remains in a natural spontaneous state without effort, dullness or excitement, and non-harmfulness, a state of patience and compassion free from any harmful intention. Briefly, those are the eleven virtuous mental factors, and if we remember them, we can take every opportunity to practice them. Then the third category of ethics is that of benefiting beings. Any way that we can benefit others fits into this category, but again, the com- commentaries throw another list of 11 factors at us to remember and practice. In this list, the first is helping those who suffer. This is probably pr- pretty obvious, as lots of people help the sick, the poor, and those handicapped in some way. Then helping those who don't know the Dharma or have little knowledge of right and wrong and have no idea about the law of cause and effect. I was reading an article recently about some people who went visiting both victims and aggressors of the genocide in Rwanda 13 years ago. The Rwandan government is trying to reconcile the aggressors and the relatives and families of the people they tortured and killed. People involved in the killings are given the opportunity to confess and serve a prison prison term, part of which is to build new houses for the people they harmed. It's pretty heartrending reading, so many of their aggressors are heavily weighed down by the horrendous things they did. And, of course, it's difficult for people to fully forgive and integrate with their harm-givers. I wonder what I would have done in a situation where, if I knew that if I didn't kill a neighbor or a friend... I would be killed or maimed. Perhaps knowing the law of cause and effect and karma, I may fi- may still find the strength to say no, but I really can't say. But without an ethical sense and knowledge of karma, it would, I suspect, be much easier just to go along with the killing out of pure fear. So sharing the dharma may be a big help. The third way of benefiting others is giving help when it It is taught taught we should see those we are helping as our previous mother and help them to repay their kindness. That will ensure what Keshe Loden calls a suitably loving and humble approach, not the overbearing attitude of Mrs. Jellyby, the do-gooder on a mission in Charles Dickens' bleak house. From my own personal point of view, we have to be careful. In my experience, often when people try to be altruistic and rush into help, they actually cause more chaos than help. It's quite difficult to know the right time to help and when it's better to just let people alone. It's one thing when people ask for help, but it's not always wise to push in where help may just be seen as interference. The fourth way of benefiting others is to protect those in danger. This includes nursing the sick, protecting people from criminals and criminal activity and so on. It also means helping those whose lives are in danger like if we see a hedgehog about to wander onto a busy road, we help by guiding it out of danger. We may not be called on to often protect people from danger, but we certainly come across lots of situations where insects and animals can be protected. We haven't even got halfway through the 11 factors, but now time is up. Thank you for joining us today. Have a happy seven days until we meet again. Goodbye.